Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which you can get as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Get more information as well as interviews with all the best people at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, my guest today uh, is none other than editor Lila Sales. Uh, Lila, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Rob. I am thrilled to chat with you. I have absolutely adored your book, The Campaign, uh, and I've got all kinds of questions about writing, about editing, about everything else. Um, but esteemed audience knows that I never summarize other people's biographies or other people's books because I want to keep friends in the industry. Uh, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Sure, yeah. So I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, I went to college at the University of Chicago. I majored in psychology. And then after I graduated from there, I started looking for publishing jobs in New York. I got my first job in the marketing department at Penguin Young Readers, and I did marketing there for children's books for about two years. And then I moved over to the editorial side of things at Viking Children's Books. I was there for about 10 years, um, and I edited uh, books for readers of all ages, picture books through YA, and fiction, nonfiction, a little bit of everything. And it was really great. But about three years ago, I left there because I was moving to Austin, Texas, which is where I am now. Uh, and so since moving to Austin, I've been doing a lot of freelance editorial work and um, uh, editorial development for, uh, for various clients. And then in addition to all that, I also write books of my own. So my first book came out in 2010 and my most recent book, The Campaign, which you just mentioned, came out this past fall. Um, so I've done five YA novels now and I am in the process of writing my third middle grade. So just uh, you, whatever it is in publishing, you do it all. Uh, so my first question is, uh, psychology is where you start. When did you make, I know you were you were writing books uh, as a child, right? You were writing picture books and then, well, you know better than I do. How many books did you write before you graduated high school? Mm, six. I mean, six, like, you know, novel length books. If you're counting picture books, uh, I don't know, infinite. <laughs> I count it all. <laughs> so I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't terribly um, good, but whatever. That's how you learn how to write a good book is you write a lot of not so good books first. Uh, so you've got that passion. I know that you're competing in gymnastic meets at that time. You're doing debate tournaments around the world. And then out of all those talents, you pursue psychology. So were you thinking that you would become a, a psychologist or what was the what was the plan? No. no, no, I never thought I would be a psychologist. I was just really interested in psychology. I mean, there's no, um, you know, you can't major in undergrad in children's books. Um, or if you can, you couldn't at my school. Um, and uh, I knew what I wanted to do was work in children's books. And there's not a particular degree that you need in order to do that. Um, I mean, I think it is very helpful to have a college degree. They generally expect to see that and you should be able to read and write and speak critically. But you can do that with any number of 
liberal arts majors. Um, and I was interested in psychology and, you know, I think it's relevant to storytelling of looking at how people interact with one another. Like I, social psychology is the bit that most interests me. So it's about relationships among people and how they influence one another and, um, you know, how they change their minds and stuff like that. And I think, you know, that, that comes up a lot in, in thinking about characters. Do you have uh, specific go-tos? Like, I don't know if you put together, what do they call that when you have a uh, a list of character traits that you assign and you fill out like a chart? Do you do things like that for your characters? Not now. I did when I was a kid. That was when I was a kid and telling stories, I would like draw a picture of each character and um, yeah, write down a lot of traits about them and what all their hobbies were and a list of their friends and stuff like that. And sort of, you know, sort of like playing imaginary games kind of where I would create a whole world um but now now it's not um I don't pre-plan characters in that sort of way gotcha did you find that that got in the way or did you find that you were then going at it what I found when I've done that uh, is if, if if I know a bunch of things about a character, I'm going to find a way to mention exactly where they graduated from school, what their major yes. was, and it may or may not be relevant to the story, but by God, I did so much work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's how you like run the risk of telling rather than showing, whereas if you just kind of like let these things come up naturally and you're and you're showing through anecdotes and scenes you know, the experiences that they've had and how they respond to things, then I don't need to state, like, she was shy. Uh, you know, it's a better read. Fair enough. So, okay, uh, so you get the the psychology degree. That's going to come in handy for characterization. And then is the plan eventually to write your own children's books or are you headed straight for editorial? Or are you just getting in wherever you can find a way in? Yeah, I uh, I always wanted to uh, write and publish books of my own, but I also knew that it's very hard to make a living as a writer. Um, so if you think, like, I started submitting my first manuscripts to publishers when I was 11 years old. And so by the time I graduated from college, I'd spent literally half my life trying to get published. So I knew that this could take a while and possibly never happen at all. Um, and therefore my plan couldn't be like, oh, graduate college and sell a book because it hadn't happened up until then. I had no reason to believe that it was going to happen any day soon. Um, so I, I always intended to get a job and it made sense to me to work in children's book publishing because that's really the only thing I've ever known about or cared passionately about. and. Um, you know, I, I just felt like I was so well informed about that. So, yeah, I started looking for pretty much any job in children's book publishing, and I would have moved um, anywhere that I could find a job uh, in that field. And that wound up being New York because that's where the vast majority of jobs in children's book publishing are. Um, and I do, you know, I, I, I wonder if that might be changing going forward as COVID is opening up a lot more opportunities for remote work. I am hopeful that maybe publishing will start to embrace remote workers in a more long-term sort of way. Um, but at the time, you know, I went to New York I a few times. I was like living with my mom in Boston, went to New York for a few times for various interviews with children's book publishers. And um, yeah, this, this job at Penguin doing marketing was the first one I got. So I nabbed it. 
So um, now that you're in Austin, but you're still uh, taking on uh, some editorial work uh, and it, everybody's working remote for the pandemic anyway, it seems like right away one of the first things you could do to uh, lower your cost as a publisher is stop paying those Manhattan rents. Uh, and that would open up, uh, I would imagine, the uh, hiring pool for a great deal more people living across the the country who would prefer to uh, pay the same amount of money for a full house as opposed to a studio apartment. Um, why aren't publishers, why have they not done that historically? And what, what, what might you lose not being in New York where everybody else is congregating? I'm so glad you asked this. I have so many opinions on it. Uh, so there are there are real benefits to being open to remote workers and there are also real detriments to it. Um, it's not like it's such an uh, easy and obviously good thing to do and publishers were just you know, foolishly failing to do it. There is a lot that you lose. Um, it is possible that what you gain outweighs what you lose, but I'm, I'm not myself confident about that. So I think to my mind, like the biggest reasons to do it is not even about lowering their expenses, though certainly they could do so if they weren't paying New York City rents. Um, for me, it's a lot more about who it is that you get to hire. So obviously we talk a lot about how publishing has a diversity problem um, or a lack of diversity problem. Um, and it's not just a question of race, it's also a question of lived experiences and uh, uh, an inordinately, an inordinately high percentage of people who work in children's books come from backgrounds quite similar to mine, which is to say, like, we grew up in New England or in the greater New York area and um, went to prep schools and or liberal arts colleges um, and then moved to New York City and had our parents help us for at least the first year when we came in making, you know, $30,000. Um, and if you want people with different lived experiences from that, um, and publishing says that they do, and um, I think you need to make it a little bit easier um, for different sorts of people to get into the field. And then at the other end, I guess I'm going to say you have uh, a lot of people who are in situations similar to me, and I've seen like many people, particularly women, go through the path that I have before of like, you know, you work really hard, you're trained, you have success, you develop expertise, you, uh, you know, you rise through the rungs of the profession. And then at some point, you don't want to live in New York anymore. And for many women, that's because they want to have children and they don't want to be raising them in a New York City apartment, or they want to be closer to their parents to have help with childcare or whatever it is. Um, and so you often get people who have 10, 15 years of experience and expertise, and then they have to leave the field um, because they don't want to be in New York anymore. Um, and all that seems like really foolish. Then on the flip side, though, you know, right, so the the benefits of being in New York and having everybody together is there is this, you know, wonderful energy and exchange of ideas and like the value of the in-person networking and learning opportunities kind of can't be overstated. I mean, when I was working at Viking, uh, both it was collaborating with my 
teammates in the office. So, you know, every day talking with people in design and copy editing and production and marketing and, um, you know, building, you know, brainstorming different ways to do things, uh, but also building personal relationships that then we could draw upon in order to make things happen professionally that we wanted to have happen. Um, but then in addition to that, I was also meeting with people outside of the house all the time, right? So multiple times a week, I would be getting lunch or coffee with a literary agent, with literary agents. Um, you know, I knew people who worked in the field at all the different publishing houses. Uh, and, and all of that is just like incredibly I mean, it's fun, it's vibrant, it's valuable. Um, and, you know, I think right now publishing is really suffering for not having those in-person opportunities. And they've made it work. And there are a lot of ways in which, you know, pub COVID has forced publishing to get better at remote work, right? So they've set up a lot of computer systems and stuff like that, that allow for this, whereas previously, you know, we we would circ physical passes, you know, that's how it's always worked. Like they would print out a copy of the picture book and, um, you know, on big paper, and they would put it on your desk and you would mark it up and then you would put it on the designer's desk and then they would put it on the copy editor's desk. And then you would print out the next copy on this pile of, papers that was the picture book would grow and grow. And, you know, so now there is a technology for being like, okay, we don't have to print it out. And, uh, you know, as an editor, when, if you went on vacation for a week, you came back and your desk would just be piled high with all of the papers of all the books that had circled to you and were just, uh, you know, waiting for you to sign off on. So, you know, so arguably some of that, it's like now that we have the system to do it virtually, we could just keep using the system to do it virtually. But then there's also some of it, like, you know, I have friends who are designers and when you're talking about like color correcting a picture book, you know, publishers have like rooms with special light and, you know, where you can print something off in exactly the color that the printer is going to make it and then look at it under these lights and see, you know, what the actual true color tone is going to be. Um, whereas looking at it on a computer screen, you know, I don't really know how designers are doing that. It seems like not ideal. They can't all get on maybe the same setting and say, okay, that's that's the setting we're going to repeat on the book, or it just doesn't work that way? Well, when you're printing physical items, there's kind of like no substitute for the physical item, you know? I don't, but it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, if you come back from vacation, how, I mean, God, if your desk is piled up uh, to... A, a significant degree. How are you going to catch up? I mean, it seems almost like a, a, a penalty for having uh, been had the audacity to take a break. Yeah, well, and you you know, there are certain things where if you if you are fortunate enough to have an assistant, if you're at a level that you have an assistant, you tell your assistant, you know, here's what's supposed to come in while I'm out. And, you know, when this comes to my desk, take it off my desk and do the following thing with it. Um, and some of it you just do it when you're back. I, I mean, yes, sure. It's hard to go. It's hard to go away for a week or two, but I think that's true in most careers. Um, after I'd been at Penguin for ten years, I got a month-long sabbatical, which is this really cool. Um, it had been a policy at Random House, not at Penguin, and so after the Penguin Random merger, uh, rather than take away sabbaticals from the Random House people, which would have caused an uproar, they offered sabbaticals to all of us, which was great. Um, and so that was one where I sort of, uh, because I was going to be gone for a month, 
actually six weeks. I tapped on two weeks of vacation time. Like I put up an out of office saying I'm not going to be considering any submissions that come in during this time. Like I have, I had no intention of coming back at the end of six weeks and going through every submission that had appeared in my inbox over the prior six weeks. You know, I just had an auto reply saying like any email that comes in during this time, um, I'm going to delete. And if you want me to consider your submission when I'm back, like my first day back in the office is whatever date and you can send it to me again then. So, okay, so there you are, two years in marketing uh, at, at Penguin. Are you mm -hmm. still writing your own stuff after hours or are you working another job while you're doing that or is that your main focus? Yeah, so I did marketing um, my first two years out of college. I think that's right. So it was like 2007, 2008, roughly. Um, and at first, I was not writing um, just because, like, I was figuring out how to live in New York and um, be a grown up and have a job and, uh, you know, all that. And then, sort of, once I figured that out, I was like, okay, I can go back to writing now. And I was actually, I, um, I was in the part of the marketing department that organized Penguin's presence at uh, school and library conventions. So. ALA and TLA, ILA, all of those. Um, and so it was actually at ALA annual where, you know, I had to do a lot of grunt work to prepare for it. But then when I was there, I got to, you know, meet all sorts of really big name authors and hear them speak and like, you know, go to big, like, I don't know, I got to go to a cocktail party with Judy Bloom, you know, stuff like that. Um, just really cool. And uh, so one of the people that I heard speak I think he had won some sort of award that year, so he was giving a talk, was um, uh, David Almond. And he talked about how, if I'm remembering his talk correctly, it was something about how like he had intended to write adult books, I think, and he had been sort of like slaving away at that, but it was hard and not very fun, and he wasn't getting a ton of success. And then somebody suggested to him like, why don't you write stuff that is easier? Um, and he was like, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of how writing works anyway. But then he wrote, um, he wrote like his first children's book and he said how it was just like a much kind of like easier and more pleasant experience. And, um, and that's how he figured out that that was like the space that he ought to be writing in. And I'm sure I'm, I'm, you know, I'm misrepresenting aspects of this talk that he gave, but that was what I got from it. So, um, at that point, I had written a humor column in my college newspaper, um, which I like really loved and did feel like very easy writing, you know, just sort of just like, um, you know, jot off 800 words about whatever it was that I was thinking about. And then they would run in the paper in the school paper later that week. And um, people would tell me that it was funny. So I started writing a novel that was kind of structured in that way. Um, it was a series of vignettes that were all, all humorous vignettes that were all set in the same location and about the same characters and so I started with that and there wasn't really any sort of unifying plot other than it being in the same setting and the same characters and then after I had a bunch of those I sort of came up with a plot that I like superimposed on top of it and that became my first published novel which was mostly good girls. And you had a background in improvisational comedy as well correct? Yeah. So you, you did a little bit of everything, gymnastics, you did debating, improvisational comedy, you've got a degree in psychology, and you're working in publishing. 
What did to you? be clear, I was very bad at gymnastics. Oh, well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, um, two years in, in marketing, how do you work your way for anybody that's listening and saying, oh, that, that Lila Sale, she sounds like she's had the dream career. I want to go and I want to do likewise. How do you get out of marketing into editing? Yeah, so going straight into editorial like editorial assistant jobs are so highly coveted and it's really hard to like it's hard to get a job in publishing period but it is especially hard to get jobs as editorial assistants and therefore most people who become editorial assistants have some other sort of experience already whether it's an internship or working in a different part of um, a publisher, which is what I had done. So yeah, I'd been in marketing for close to two years. And through that, I knew all of the publishers at Penguin Young Readers. I'd had cause to interact with them at these conferences, you know, or I'd sent them advertisements for their review or, um, you know, or occasionally would go around to their offices to bring them things or whatever it was. So you know, they sort of, I was very intimidated by all the publishers, but like, you know, they knew who I was. And I think, I hope had, you know, a, a fairly good sense of me as like, oh yes, our young colleague who, you know, gets things done over in marketing. Um, so I found out one of my friends, one of my dearest friends to this day, um, at the time she was assistant editor uh, in Viking and somebody who was at a higher level was, uh, leaving because she'd had a baby and so she could not um, afford to work and have and raise her child at the same time so she was leaving and my dear friend Kendra was getting promoted and so Kendra came to me and she said like they're going to be looking for a new assistant here at Viking and like I think it should be you because she knew I wanted to be an editorial and, um, and so again like I you know I knew the publisher a little she knew me um, and so I like I, I applied for the job going through, um, you know, like proper channels and there's a system in place. So I had to tell my boss at the time that I was, uh, you know, just to submit my resume didn't take anything. But at the point that the publisher of Viking said she wanted to interview me, I had to tell my boss, like, you know, I'm interviewing for this other job down the hall, uh, which of course was like kind of scary because I was like, if I don't get this other job down the hall, then my boss here in marketing is going to know that I wanted to leave. Um, but fortunately, I did get offered the editorial assistant position at Viking. Um, and it was really exciting. And so I yeah, so I, I moved from my cubicle in marketing down the hall to my cubicle in editorial. Does it not uh, assume that if you're working a position within the publisher that everybody's got their eye on editorial? Like if you're waiting tables in LA, we know that you have an audition, you're going to you want to be an actor. Yeah. No, it's really not. I mean, and and I think if you if you want to get a job in publishing, you have to really convince whoever is hiring you that you want to be in that particular department. Nobody's going to I mean, it's like any job, right? Like nobody's going to hire you if you come in and you're like, yeah, really what I want to do is be an editorial. But like, I guess if what's available is a sales assistant position, like, sure, I'll take that. No, they're going to hire the person who comes in and says they want to be a sales assistant. Um, so while there are certainly people who work in other departments who who deep down want to be an editorial, um, there are also many people who want to be exactly where they are. And I think some people think they want to be an editorial because 
they know they want to work in publishing and they don't really know what all the different departments are, but editorial is the one where they know what they do. So it sort of seems like, well, of course, if I want to work in publishing, I want to be an editor because that's, you know, it wouldn't occur to you to want to be a, a subsidiary rights manager because you have never heard that term before, probably, you know? Well, once you're there and you see how the subsidiary rights manager shows up in their big, expensive, fancy car every day and is living the, the dream life, <laughs> that might change yeah. this, right? And I really do. I mean, I genuinely have friends who, you know, who started out as editorial interns, editorial assistants, assistant editors, and then were like, you know, and as they reached the point where they might be acquiring their own books, they were like, it's not for me. And they moved over to a different part of the publishing business. You know, they're like, still love books, don't want to be an editor. So 2000, and by the way, you mentioned uh, Kendra, that's Kendra Levin, Levin? Levin, Kendra Levin. Uh, who has a seven-question interview available exclusively right now at middlegradeninja.com. Can't never miss an opportunity for a plug. I met uh, Kendra at a conference uh, many years ago, which is a wonderful, uh, wonderful person to, to learn from and chat with. She is the best. She also, while we're plugging Kendra, she uh, wrote a book, which is a guide for writers called The Hero Is You. And it is, um, it's a craft book, but more than that, it's sort of like a life book of how to have like a, a happy and fulfilling creative life um, and how to write in a way where it doesn't feel uh, destructive or painful or, um, and feels like, joyous and productive. It is She's on my great. Kindle now because I had seen you elsewhere recommending it as your all-time favorite craft book. I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with Kendra. I get like personally coached by her most days. So <laughs> I like, I've always said, I'm glad she wrote this book so that other people can like benefit from her wisdom a little. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, she, so many of my books, particularly my earlier books, she read the drafts and you know, wrote me like full editorial letters for free just because she's my friend. And I don't know who has the time for that. Like who, I mean, it's just, it is such an act of love. Sounds like a good friend to have in your corner. Um, so, okay, so you've got all that going on and then you start writing again in addition to all of your editing. And I I, I wonder if you're if you're editing all day and you're working with authors, and I know you you give a talk on uh, things that uh, writers don't know about editors, and one of them is that they're not reading submissions there in the office. Uh, so I'm assuming you're taking a lot of that work home and doing that reading as well. So when are you finding time to write? What's your writing to editing ratio look like at that point? Yeah, um, and I will say also if people watching want to do further reading, I wrote an article about that for Publishers Weekly, which was what authors know that they want editors to know what editors know that they want authors to know. So I have like a whole list of them. Um, yeah, and most of the reading of submissions does not happen in the office. And maybe, you know, the earlier you are in your career, the less work you're taking home. So, you know, I launched, like I sold my first book while I was still an assistant editor. Um, it probably would have been hard to do later on in my career when I was acquiring more as opposed to, um, you know, assisting my bosses who were the ones who were doing the acquisitions. Um, yeah, I think I had not acquired for myself a single book at the point that I sold uh, the first book that I had written, which I think just makes you have, you simply have more time. Um, but yeah, I was always, I mean, cause certainly by the time I left Penguin, I was still writing 
and at that point I was acquiring and editing a lot of books of my own and had a lot of submissions. And, um, I don't know, for me, it was just about like drawing clear boundaries of sort of like I would, um, read submissions on the subway to and from work. Um, I would read submissions before going to bed at night, you know, stuff like that. But like when I had hours that were set aside for writing, I wouldn't sacrifice those. And if it meant getting back to an agent later than I wanted to, like, that's unfortunate and I felt guilty about it, but also like, um, I had to do what I had to do. Um, and this is, you know, this is why often editors are not reading full manuscripts and why we talk about how important it is to have, you know, first few chapters that like really grab you. Um, because editors just have so many submissions and so little time to read that they're they're starting to read sort of, um, you know, like if there's any opportunity to be like, okay, like I don't need to keep reading this, then they're gonna take that opportunity and start reading the next submission. Okay, what are common uh, outs that you would be looking for? On, how long a subway ride are we, are we talking? Um, half an hour, but I'm a very fast reader. How fast are you? I don't know if you clocked it or if you have a... Really <laughs> fast. <laughs> I have not clocked it. I'm very fast. Uh, when, you're uh, not, when you're not editing, how many books would you say you read in a week, a month? Oh, I don't... I mean, it depends what... I can't answer that. It depends what the book is, how, you know, how interesting it is. If it's a book that I want to read and I'm engaged in the story um, and I want to find out what happens, you know, I'll read it in a day or two. Um, but uh, if it's, you know, a nonfiction book, maybe where I feel like it's important but not super narratively compelling, could be months. I know I'm usually reading a bunch of different stuff at once on a bunch of different formats. So I'll be, you know, reading a manuscript for work, reading a manuscript because I might blurb it, um, reading, uh, you know, a book for my, for like just my book club for fun, reading a friend's book, um, reading something I got in from the library because it sounded good, you know, sort of like a bunch of stuff. And which again is why I like, it has to be good because otherwise it just kind of gets buried with everything else that I'm reading. Have you always been a fast reader or is this a skill yes. that you've developed? I have always been a fast reader. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I remember in middle school, kids I'm like for someone that could show me how to how to read faster than I do. Mm. Practice. I think you just have to do it a ton. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah. When I was in middle school, I remember kids like making fun of me for how fast I read. And now I want to go back and be like, yeah, I actually got a career out of that. It would be hard to have my career if you couldn't read as fast as I do. Well, I'm, I'm usually good for uh, about two, sometimes three books in a week if I'm if I'm really focused. But I yeah. know that's nothing compared to some speed readers who can uh, do 10, 20 books in that same yeah. period of time. I'm not, I mean, I, I, I am not reading more than two or three books a week because I, I, a lot of it is just, you know, how much time I'm devoting to it, how much interest I have in it. It's not, you know, like if I, if I wanted to spend all day reading, I could get through 10, 20 books a week. Um, but that's not what I want to do. Um, and when you're an editor, you know, often you're not finishing a book, you're reading pieces, you're reading the first 50, maybe first 100 pages of a dozen books a week. 
Um, and then you're also rereading the same manuscripts that you're going to be publishing over and over and over again. So it's a very, very different sort of reading experience. So when you're uh, when you were trying to clear those submissions out of your pile, like get out of here so I can focus on the ones that we're definitely going to publish. What are the most common outs that you were putting? What gave you permission to stop reading? Um, yeah, so. Let me think. Sometimes it would be just that of like, I, I don't feel compelled to keep reading. Like, I'll just say like, this book feels too easy to put down. And like, if it's too easy for me to put down, I believe that it would be too easy for like a distractible nine-year-old to put down as well. Um, so going along with that, it would be like, maybe the stakes feel too low. Um, or maybe I don't care about what happens to this character or um you know maybe the like i don't buy the conflict it's the conflict seems like it could be solved but for the hand of the author just keeping this conflict going in order to like have a book um or yeah or i don't really care if the character resolves this conflict i'm not that bothered by the existence of this conflict in their lives um or, you know, it could be writing style, just saying, like, uh, you know, the voice doesn't sound authentically childlike or teenage to me. Um, and or even I find the voice off putting and then it's like, I don't want to spend time with this manuscript. Um, you know, and then sometimes I sort of I, I always would read until I had a point where I could say definitively, like, here's why it won't work for me and I think I could have gone through submissions a lot faster if I could just say like I know I'm not going to publish it and therefore I can pass on it but I always felt obligated to explain why I wasn't going to publish it so there were many manuscripts that I did read all the way to the end and then my explanation for why I wasn't going to publish it would just be sort of like I don't you know like it's fine and if it was already a book I'm it would be a book that would be fine I'm sure people would read it some people might enjoy it um but like I'm not in love with it and maybe there's no reason why or no reason that I can put my finger on, but I can't invest like the time and money in it if I'm not in love with it and not ready to like passionately advocate for it every day for the next two years. I love this idea that you know you're going to pass on a book, but you want to read it to the end just so you have a good reason for why you're you're passing on it. Uh, and yeah. is that to preserve your relationships with whatever editor or um, agent uh, had, had submitted that manuscript to you or just out of personal obligation because you yourself are an author and you want authors to be treated fairly, I assume? Yeah, I think it's probably more that. I mean, definitely, you know, agents are, most of the agents who submitted to me were people who I knew and therefore I wanted to like, you know, give their manuscripts due consideration and give them some piece of useful feedback but yeah but i think more than it more than that was like the author is a person who worked really hard on this i know how long it takes to write a book and i've had plenty of books get rejected like it's not any easier to write a book that gets rejected than it is to write a book that gets published like it's it's hard and time consuming and you know and emotionally involved either way um so just wanting to, yeah, give them something because I've gotten their rejections that are just like, it's not right for me. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to improve? Or, you know, is it just dumb luck? Like, 
Um, so yeah, wanting to give authors what it is that I want to get. And I know at that same time, you're working on uh, some pretty big uh, properties. You were working on Corduroy. Uh, you're working on Ferdinand, The Snowy Day, and Angelina Ballerina. The big, big, recognizable names. That's got to be a, a heavy burden when you know when you've got Corduroy there on your your shoulders. You've got children across uh, the, or, or around the world. Uh, don't 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 let them down. How uh, how does that change when you're approaching a property like that versus something brand new? Is there a sense of um, I don't know. Greater responsibility is the word. Maybe just yeah. What what is the difference if you're working on a on a big corduroy type project versus this is a brand new project that I hope will be the next corduroy, but presently right. isn't. I actually find it easier to work on something that's already a big property um, because the support for it is already there from marketing and sales and everyone else, booksellers, etc. Because it's already a known quantity that has proven its profitability. Um, so, you know, if you do a new book in the Corduroy series, it's not very hard to get um, approval to pay for that book. And you don't have to fight to get marketing to come up with a really good marketing plan for it or anything. That's all kind of assumed because it's Corduroy. Um, but when you're doing, you know, a, a debut YA novel, debut YA novel um, it's, you know, those are ones that I take on because I'm like, I love this specific story it's not like oh i you know i love the character of angelina ballerina i love the character of ferdinand it's like i love this story and i want to get it out into the world and therefore i think there's like a lot more you feel a lot more like personal responsibility for it and also it's a lot easier to feel like you failed that personal responsibility because it's much more likely that marketing is going to say like well we're not going to put a ton of money into a big campaign for this debut novel you know we don't know how it's going to do so we'll kind of wait and see um and, you know, it's just like, I really want to do right by my writers. Every editor does. Um, and, you know, especially it's like they like we know how much work they put into this and what their hopes for it are. And particularly if it's, you know, an auction situation where it's like they chose us, like they chose me to be the editor and they could have chosen somebody else. Um, then it feels like, you know, if the book doesn't come out the way that I wanted it to, um, it feels like I'm like, you know, betraying them in some way. And you don't get that so much with something like Ferdinand, because A of all, like, it's going to come out really well because it's Ferdinand and everyone's going to be excited about it. Um, and B of all, the author isn't even there. At that point, you're dealing with an estate or a foundation who's managing the rights to the property. Um, and they certainly have needs of their own, but it's not their, um, like, you know, creative baby. So at any point, do you get to, I mean, you're, you're reading all day uh, for, for all the reading you've got to keep up on. You're talking books, you're thinking books. I'm assuming at some point, do you just go watch, watch a movie, binge a TV show, play a video game, do something else, no. or is just stay, stay in the zone with books? Just books. But yeah, now that, I mean, again, the past three years have been different because I left Penguin. So, um, so now I read, I've watched some TV shows. I mean, I'm still not great with TV shows, but like I watch them sometimes. <laughs> We're like <laughs> definitely getting better trying to catch up. 
I've, I, you know, TV is one of those things where, aside from the really big ones, like I'm watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, mm-hmm. naturally, um, the really big ones that I know I'm, I'm going to have conversations with people I like about, that I'll, I'll watch that once through. But anything else, like I was trying to watch the Hannibal show, and it was yeah. like, oh, if this were a book, if, if I was reading Thomas Harris and somebody killed somebody with an eel, which, what a, what a wonderful middle grade example I've chosen, but that, that did happen in one of those books. I would do the work of convincing myself for Mr. Harris. I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I'll add some details in my mind. I'll make it work. But if I'm watching it and I'm, I know it's actors, nope, I can't. I can't do it. Give me a book. Let me let me let me uh, do the directing on this. I'll make sure it's believable. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah. No, I like TV. I like movies. I like. I, don't, I just kind of like stories in general. Like um, maybe regardless of medium, I like stories. Are you still doing uh, gymnastics or hobbies yeah. uh, outside of uh, storytelling? Um, definitely not gymnastics. I would severely hurt myself. Um, I, I like to ride my bike, though I did. I fell off my bike yesterday. So I don't know if you can. I have like a little. I like fell on my lip. So it's like a little swollen. Um, but yeah, but I, I love riding my bike. And, um, and I love traveling obviously i haven't done much of that this past year because of covid but you know even when i was working at penguin i took every single one of my vacation days and uh would go as many places as i could um and seeing friends and um sure i have other hobbies i sleep a ton like to the point where it's probably my major hobby um dance parties uh, my my boyfriend and I do a weekly dance party that we've been streaming since COVID began. So we do a weekly streaming dance party, and so doing you know promotion for that and stuff like that. So yeah, it's I I, I um find many things to keep myself busy. Where can esteemed audience tune in to watch these dance parties? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. It is at uh, Twitch.tv/slash/BrianBlackout, and. We also, or I talk about it on my Twitter, like every Monday, I remind people to come to our streaming dance party. Um, So, yeah. And then we started a a newsletter about things to do in Austin. So I spent a lot of time like looking at interesting things to do and like compiling them for, for newsletter readers and stuff. So yeah, there's plenty of stuff that I do that is not for profit is just because it's stuff that interests me. Uh, and then, okay, so while while you're editing and then versus now, what does your writing look like? I mean, are, are you setting a firm, I will write for two hours first thing in the morning and then the rest of the day can be whatever whatever everyone else needs from me? Or how do you structure your day then? And then how do you structure it now where presumably you pulled back on a lot of those editing responsibilities? Yeah, uh, when I was at Penguin, I would choose one one evening uh after work after i left the office that would be like my writing evening and the idea was like i wouldn't go to the gym i wouldn't cook dinner i wouldn't clean nor talk to friends like i wouldn't do anything that would take any time so if i got you know i would leave the office on time so if i got home from work at you know 6 30 then i would have a solid um you know four hours uninterrupted writing time and it would be a long day because i would have already worked but like you know whatever you have one long day a week and like you can do it um and then also i would write all day on Sundays, usually with um, one of my dear friends, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Searle, who's a, she now does adult novels and she's today marked her sixth week on the New York Times bestseller list for 
um, her book uh, in five years. Um, but uh, she and I would generally spend Sundays. We'd sort of like get some brunch and then sit at, sit in my house or in my apartment and write for however many hours. So sort of like I only got like one real weekend day, but like, yeah, that was okay. Um, and I produced a number of books that way. Now I'm way worse at managing my time because I don't have a nine to five. So um, I have like no advice to give now. Now it's like, I just kind of like, do things as they come in. It's never clear to me when I'm supposed to be writing or when I'm supposed to be like doing editorial work. I often do the editorial work because that has like clear deliverables for clients as opposed to write a book, which is this sort of, you know, amorphous deliverable that uh, is due at some point in the future. So um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Don't, don't come to me for advice on self-employment yet. I'm still working that part out. But you have produced uh, a number of books, and I assume are going to continue to do so. So if you've got one weekend day, what's a good day look like? Do you have, like, a word count you're trying to hit? How do you, how um, do you Yeah. That? On days that I'm writing, I um, my goal is a 1,000 words. And often I will write more than a 1,000 words. You know, it's sort of like if you say that's what I have to hit, then often you'll find, like, by the time, you know, maybe the first 100 words are hard, but by the time you hit – a thousand it's pretty easy to just be like oh i'm in the middle of this scene i'll just i know what's going to come next so i'll just keep going um uh and there are plenty of days when i don't write and it's fine if i say like this is a non-writing day and i'm you know i'm going to be working on the following editorial projects for various clients and um and you know responding to emails and so on and so forth the only real hard ones are where i say like this is going to be a writing day and then i don't write because I just do all the other work and then at the end of the day it's like you should feel accomplished because you responded to all those emails and did all that editing stuff but you don't actually because you didn't write anything and you had said at the beginning of the day you were going to so those are the not good days those are the days I'm trying to have less of anytime I try to designate the whole day for writing I find that that will be the day the house gets clean uh, all my emails are caught up. Every everything else but the writing couldn't it couldn't have been done better. <laughs> and this is why everybody talks about like having writing sprints. And you know, if you say like I'm only giving myself 45 minutes to write, you're going to do more than if you say like I could write anything at any point over the course of this whole day. Um, and I like you know, it's like I like writing with friends. Like I like meeting someone in a coffee shop and being like, okay, we have two hours to write together here in this coffee shop. And then if emails come in, I'm like, no, you'll get to that later because right now is your only chance to sit in this coffee shop and write across from your friend. But COVID's really messed up that that routine. Ah, it's messed up a little bit of everything. Although uh, I know some, I've, I've done some Zoom meets where, you know, you can check in for a few minutes. Hey, how you doing? You're writing, okay, let me check back with you in 45 minutes, an hour. When are you going to try to accomplish in that time? Great, this is what I'm going to try and accomplish. See you then, and we'll tell each other that we did it or we didn't and why. Yeah, yes. I've gonna. I've done some of those, too. Um, there's a thing called Cave Day, and they do, like, Zoom. The idea is sort of, like, going into the, like, metaphorical cave where you're just focused on one thing for, like, a 45-minute sprint. Um, so I've done, I've done some sessions there and that was helpful for focusing gotcha and when you're writing do you have like a specific place some little rituals that you perform to get in the spot do you have a favorite beverage that has to accompany you what what does uh lila sales writing look like mm. 
Um, I mean, I think it's pretty boring. I was just saying this to somebody the other day, how writers in, you know, in movies, it always looks so exciting, this sort of montage of them feverishly dashing off words. And actually what it is, is like somebody kind of like slumped at their computer wearing pajamas and like eating chocolate chips straight out of the bag. Um, so <laughs> no, I don't, I mean, yeah, I like, I like having writing snacks. I like having some tea or something, but, um, yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll write anywhere with anything. It's more pleasant with chocolate chips, but. Fair enough. So, okay. Um, wanna I want to talk about lots of uh, uh, things, but I want to talk about you writing and how you, all of your experience as an editor comes to inform how you compose a, a middle grade book. And luckily, I know of just such a one. Uh, so uh, one thing that surprised me that uh, of the things that you're doing for fun that you're not doing uh, is politics. I mean, so are you still involved uh, politically in your spare time? Yes. Let's talk about the campaign and let's start. Let's talk uh, about politics because you've done this incredibly brave thing of, of, of producing a politically themed book that releases in September of 2020, which yeah. is just that might be the most contentious election I think I might ever live through. <laughs> Certainly the biggest uh, nail biter. Um, so I promised I'd never summarize other people's uh, books. If you would give a steamed audience an overview of the campaign and we'll kind of go from there. It's about a 12-year-old girl named Maddie who feels out of place at school. She doesn't get good grades. She doesn't have a ton of friends there. She feels like the only thing she's really good at is art, and the only place where she really feels at home is art class. So when she finds out that the woman who is running uncontested, uncontested to become mayor of their town intends to cut all funding for arts education. Maddie is very concerned. She knows that she has to do something to stop this woman from becoming mayor. She tries a bunch of different tactics and ultimately what she settles upon is getting her babysitter to run for the position of mayor against this woman. And in trying to organize the campaign for her babysitter to win this election, Maddie discovers that there are actually a lot of other things she's good at, not just art. And she also discovers that she has a lot more of a community among the other kids at her school, um, particularly the other kids who are interested in arts than she had ever realized before. And I had read that you uh, were involved in your first mayoral campaign at 12. Yes, uh, I based Maddie loosely on that. A third grade language arts textbook. So how much of this is uh, a little bit uh, not autobiographical, but how much of this is based on your experience? Yeah, no, a lot of it is inspired by. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I started I was always politically engaged. Yes, I started a petition against our language arts textbook in third grade. Um, I. Uh, I started volunteering on my first mayoral campaign when I was 12. It was such a like, you know, other kids were going to play soccer or whatever. and I'm no good at soccer. So my parents were like, it's fine. We'll just drop you off at these campaign headquarters and like do whatever they tell you to do. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's I mean. It's a cool experience for a kid. You feel like like 
you know, in one of those situations where it's like all hands on deck and like we need to do whatever we can to win this election, nobody's like, oh, there's like the child over in the corner, you know, give them some toys to play with. They're like, great, like if you can do work, like, you know, do some work. We don't care how old you are. We don't care what your background is or your education level or whatever it is. Like, you know, can you stamp envelopes? Okay, go stamp envelopes. Is that part of the appeal is you get to feel like you're not a kid. You're 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 a full adult participating like Maddie feels in the story. Yeah, you're making a difference. And, um, you know, we sort of, we act like, I don't know, adults often act like kids can't really make a difference. And this book shows that they can. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's a lot of why kids read books is wanting to feel like, you know, what they do genuinely matters and not just like, oh, it matters, you know, in my class or to my friends. Like, I think this is why kids like epic stories like Harry Potter or something like that. The idea of, you know, like what I do matters on like a, um, you know, a global existential scale. And the nice thing about this is you you can be a muggle and, and, and pull off this uh, campaign stuff. In fact, you've got a multi-page uh, call to action here at the back of the book in your your author's note where you've got multiple websites, you've got um, some advocacy groups that folks can join. You will be recommending that they form their own club, that they volunteer for a political candidate. Um, was this, uh, because of the timing, uh, not, to, not to talk about uh, politics too much, but was this motivated by the, uh, the, the tragedy of 2016 or had you always planned to write a book along these lines and that just happened to be a happy coincidence? Well, happy is the wrong word, but a coincidence. Uh, no, it was very much motivated by the um, election of 2016. Uh, I think a lot of writers found that they had trouble writing after that because it felt like a lot of the stuff maybe that we had been writing before um, felt comparatively unimportant. And so I think uh, I think a lot of writers sort of had this crisis of confidence of like, you know, why am I writing um, I don't know, stories about a high school boy and girl falling in love or whatever when like, you know, when there's really serious issues happening in the world that need to be confronted. Um, and so I think we've seen a lot more kind of like politically and, and socially engaged books over the past five years for that reason. Um, and I actually, I edited one for Penguin as well. I like developed a book for Penguin called The Little Book of Little Activists, which was this uh, photo illustrated book of uh, real kids at the Women's March and other um, various actions and them like with their signs. And then it had quotes from a bunch of real kids on topics like what democracy means to me and what uh, freedom means to me, what feminism means to me, stuff like that. Um, so I think a lot of us were sort of motivated to look more in that direction. And that was what inspired the campaign as well. Um, but with the campaign, you know, I was very careful to not make it a partisan book. Like nobody in the book has a political party. Political parties aren't mentioned in it. Um, because I think it's so easy for us to get bogged down in party politics and the idea of like, you know, sort of viewing politics as like two sports teams and like, you know, there's my team and then there's the other team and my team's the good guys and the other team's the bad guys. Um, and it's really simplistic, really ignores all of the issues and like the people who are actually affected by the issues. Um, 
and just becomes a like rah rah my team sort of thing um so in the campaign because it's focusing on a local election we don't need to know what party anybody is it's more about like what do they want to do for this town and how do they want to get it done um so you know the nice thing about the book is like no matter how strongly you identify as a democrat or a republican um like the book still works for you i think i I 100% agree with that, and there's the. I don't think the word Republican or Democrat even appears anywhere in the book. Uh, no, it doesn't. Although when uh, one party is trying to cut funds for arts, and uh, the the other uh, party running would like to see a continuation of of art, you know, it implies draw yeah. their own conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There is. I'm trying to find it. There is a quote in here that I felt. Uh, was almost speaking directly uh, to me, uh, which I, I, I feel unlikely since you and I are just meeting, to the best of my knowledge, uh, <laughs> for the first time tonight. But I think maybe it was speaking to the entire country. Um, and of course, I had the uh, call to action queued up. I cannot find the quote, but you were talking specifically, it's the uh, gentleman at the um, farmer's market uh, who is telling Maddie when she's overwhelmed and it feels like it would be easy to give up and not to give up. Um, and, well, I can't. Nope, I did find it. Woo, here we go. Okay. So uh, Maddie's feeling a bit discouraged. She's got to get, what, three, 300, 350 signatures in order to get her former babysitter, Janet, on the, the ticket to run for mayor. Uh, and she's talking to this gentleman who's out and he's campaigning or he's trying to get people involved with uh, – uh, the environment uh, he she says um, like or he, he said discouraged like you put in all this effort and it hasn't really gotten any better nah he said because if I hadn't put in that effort then it would have gotten so much worse I suppose that could be true furthermore he said if you want something you've got to go after it it doesn't matter if you think you're never going to get there because you for sure won't get there if you don't even try Proceed boldly toward your dreams. Even if you never arrive at the destination, at least you'll be headed in the right direction. So is that the, is that what, I, I believe that is what that character would say in that situation. But is that uh, a little bit of the Lila Sales philosophy that, that's, that's being shared with us? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and I think, right, when you're writing a book, you always, when you're writing a book for children, you always have to be careful about um, how much do you have a grown-up who knows everything uh, just kind of, you know, announcing to the character what it is that they should that they should do, you know, explaining it to them, like, you know, because obviously, like, most everything in the book has to come from your, your child protagonist. Um, but yeah, that was one where I felt like in context um, it was okay to have that little sort of monologue by him and yes i totally feel that way i mean both in terms of political activism but also in terms of like i don't know career stuff what life stuff um whatever it is like you you know you know if you can know where it is that you want to be you can start heading towards it and what's that quote like you know aim for the moon even if you miss you'll land among the stars like you know it's all sort of sort of that same idea um and 
I'm assuming you're you're still politically active now mm-hmm. uh, when yeah. you can be. Um, has there been a point over the past uh, four years or, or beyond where you've been discouraged and said, well, what's the point? This is madness. The people around me are, they must be crazy. Three million more people voted for this man who, who told us to inject ourselves with disinfectant uh, without yeah. mentioning a specific political party. Who, who, whosoever that person may be. Um, you see three more million more people vote for that. I'm like, oh, my fellow countrymen are crazy. How could we possibly... How could we possibly come to terms and, and reason? Do you still hold out hope that that is possible, that bridges can be built? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, yes, what you just said really resonates with me. And, um, you know, right now, I will say I'm feeling very frustrated. Like I, um, you know, as I said, I moved to Texas three years ago. I'm in Austin, where, which is a, very liberal city and the politics are very much aligned with my own um and for both the 2018 election and the 2020 election it seemed like you know turning texas blue was really on the table and we had so i was working or i was you know volunteering with an organization this year that was trying to uh, flip the texas state house um and you know, we only needed to flip nine seats and we had like, you know, 17 different seats that that like we really believed on you know, all, the, you know, the data indicated could go either way. They're mostly like in the suburbs of Dallas and Houston. And um, and we did a lot of work to try and target those seats to try and flip the state house um, so that when uh, I mean, for many reasons, but one of them being that when redistricting happens this year because, you know, the 2020 census, so this year everything gets redistricted, um, and Texas is hugely gerrymandered, like Austin is cut into six different congressional districts with these sort of like little pieces of a pie coming into Austin and then like, you know, expanding out through the, uh, you know, through the Texas countryside um, in order to ensure that there's not a Democrat in Congress representing Austin. Um so all of that seemed really doable. Um, and then when the results for the 2020 election came in, um, we didn't win any of those 17 seats. Um, and that felt really dispiriting because so much of it has to do with expectations. And when your expectations are like, we could do this and you spend months telling people like, this is within our grasp and if we act and if we try, and then when it doesn't happen, you're like, but I did act and I did try. Um, and then now, of course, when you see things like, um, you know, in Georgia, all these new efforts that they're putting through in order to try and restrict voting rights access, and Texas is going to be the next state where, um, you know, where those things are on, those sorts of policies are on the docket. And, you know, because it's like they, everyone can see that Texas is starting to trend purple. And so it's like, what, um, you know, what can the party in power put into place in order to stop that from happening? Um, all of which, again, even more makes me feel like, you know, if we'd made the change in 2018, if we made the change in 2020, that would have been great. But as it is, like, now we're going to have yet another setback. Um, so, yes, I feel discouraged a lot. Um, and I do, you know, I, I wrote the campaign because it does sometimes feel like adults are 
a lost cause and um, so many of us didn't receive a proper education in civics as children and that leaves us open to the whims of whatever Twitter is telling us on any given day and it's hard to get adults to want to learn about civics. So if you can start out with kids, teaching them about like, here's how to, again, not not trying to give them my political beliefs, but just things about like, here's how to process news. Here's how to figure out what issues are that matter to you and understand why somebody would see them from a different perspective. Here's how the executive branch is supposed to work and how much power it is supposed to have versus the legislative and judicial branch. You know, just like stuff that is just true about America, regardless of what party you're in. It's like, if you can learn that when you're nine through reading the campaign, then maybe like 10, 20 years from now, um, it will be better here. I like it. Uh, you know, I've kind of settled. Like I, uh, I had enough arguments with folks uh, on the other side of the aisle that realized that facts don't matter. There is no fact I could state that was going to change anybody's mind. Um, and so, but what I, what I have decided for myself thus far is that if I could just encourage more people to read, reading promotes empathy. And mm -hmm. if you've got more empathy for your fellow Americans, eh. You do whatever you want culturally, but we can maybe move a little bit, move that needle a little bit toward a, 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 a better country. And that's one of the things that Maddie learns in the campaign, too. Right? Like she starts out just being like, here's the thing that matters to me. It's arts, arts education, and I just need to protect that. But then as she starts to know and care about other people in her community, she's like, oh, well, they also have interests that are as important to them as mine is to me. And, you know, this election isn't just about what I need or what I get and people who you know who can just kind of opt out of the system who say like eh, I'm not gonna vote in this election because like I don't go to school and I don't have any kids who go to school and I'm not interested in art and Maddie's sort of like but that shows a complete lack of empathy for me um and so yeah so that's what that's definitely what it's trying to get across so then I've uh I've asked you these questions I'm making this book it is very serious but it's also very funny um, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Those, those uh, improvisational comedy skills are on full display <laughs> throughout because there was a, a good laugh almost every chapter uh, and sometimes <laughs> several. Uh, these are short chapters. Um, so as far as your writing style, let's, um, let's break it down. How long does a book like this take you to write? Depends how much I'm focusing on it and how much I'm doing other stuff. Like, I think if I just sat down and actually wrote it, I could do it in a few months, but that's never how I do it. It usually takes me like at least a year. Um, not because it's so much text, but just because like, you know, I'll write for a few days and then I'll think about it for a month. So um, probably longer than it needs to, but I think even the month that I spend thinking about it and not typing is like part of the process. Fair enough. I mean, it must be. It's it, it's producing quality work. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you have some far hard and fast rules as far as the chapter lengths uh, seem pretty not uniform, uh, but pretty consistent as far as how long they were and where they're ending. Do you have some hard and fast rules about chapters? About yeah. Go ahead. Um. Yeah, I tend to in my middle grades the chapters tend to be a bit shorter. Um, I tend to aim for like around five pages, um, you know, or maybe roughly 
a thousand to fifteen hundred words per chapter. Um, sometimes it's longer than that or shorter than that, and that's fine. Um, if it's tons longer than that, then I'm like, okay, it seems like a sign that I should split this into two chapters, and then I do. Um, you know, I think a chapter ending, every chapter should have something in it that is going to propel you forward to the next chapter. So some sort of unanswered question that we need to read the next chapter in order to find out the answer or some kind of uh, promise about like an interesting scene that's to come, you know, of like, oh, she was really dreading her run in with her aunt Helen the next day. Um, so then you're like, oh, I want to find out why she's dreading it. And, you know, what's on Helen's deal? So like, I'll, you know, I'll turn the page on the assumption that the next chapter is going to give that to me. Um, so, you know, I think not every chapter needs to end on a cliffhanger, it just needs to give you a like a reason to turn the page again. Well, if a cliffhanger is not available, which is one thing I miss about writing zombie books, I got to write another one because there's always somebody getting chased by a zombie. So cliffhangers are great. Yeah. Um, but when you don't have the, the the great advantage of zombies or a cliffhanger, what are good notes to end on that are going to keep that that reader propelled forward? Mm. I mean, sometimes I think you can end on like a moment of peace and kind of like, you know... Um, I want to see here, like, how, I don't know, the first chapter ends, we've just introduced this conflict of, um, kids at school kind of ostracizing her, and it ends on the sentence, and somehow I'm the weird one? That doesn't make sense out of context. Um, I don't know, that one just sort of ends with, like, a wry observation. Um... And then the next one ends with a really obvious question. She finds out in chapter two about this woman who's going to become mayor and get rid of arts. And so we end with the sentence, without art, what was I going to do? So that brings you very clearly in the next chapter of like, okay, she's going to tell us what she's going to do. So let's find out what it is. Um, chapter three ends. The babysitter is saying like, you know, here's something we could try. Maddie's like, Maddie's like, are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure this woman's just evil. Um, the babysitter says, I have no idea, but there's only one way to find out. So we're like, okay, I guess in the next chapter, we're going to find out what the one way to find out is. So, yeah, like that. So, it seemed like uh, the, the end on multiple character points with insights into Maddie, so that if the cliffhanger is not available, I felt like you were investing us... Uh, not just Maddie, we're also invested in Janet. We're also invested in my friend. As a, Kevin, my friend Daniel. My friend Daniel, I couldn't remember. I love that name, though. <laughs> um, so, and, and then Molly, Molly, Holly, and Polly. <laughs> just great names throughout. Um, but it's, it felt like uh, character was something that got hit again and again to, to keep us focused on Maddie. We're never seeing anything that's not in some way filtered through Maddie's perspective. Is, is that right? Yeah, well, it's first person. So I, I may think you would do the same even if it was third person. Like, you know, she's the main character, so her perspective is the only one really that matters. Um, but yeah, definitely. Because, you know, I think any book should be about, or any novel should be about the main character's arc, right? Like their internal journey. So 
if they start out thinking or believing something that like even if there are other characters in the story saying like eh, that's not true or that's not consequential or whatever it is like you know the process of the story has to be them coming to understand that for themselves it can't just be again like some grown-up who knows everything telling them on page two like oh the thing you're worried about is silly or here's the solution or whatever it is because then like they're not going through that growth on their own very nice job i don't think there's one scene where maddie sits and thinks about her problems or her situation she's always on the move she's always doing a thing uh, which which I absolutely love. There's there's no scene that exists solely for exposition, and I've I've seen you talk elsewhere that you you try to avoid those. How do you avoid those? Because obviously at some point we got to get some exposition to know what's going on. What are your rules about exposition? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean I think like working it into a scene, um, and the scene has like an interesting setting, something is going on there. So it's not like I'm sitting at home alone quietly in bed thinking it's, you know, I'm at the basketball game or whatever it is. Um, and um, so so even if we have a line of, you know, I'm thinking about this, then we have the action of, you know, the basketball dribbled toward me or whatever. And so, um, so it doesn't feel like, oh, it's just like three paragraphs of you uh, ruminating. Um, and putting some of it into conversation, you know, like it's always going to be better if, you know, if it's like, okay, let's review the facts of the case. Let's review the what clues we have available to us. It's always going to be better if it's two characters like talking about them and bouncing them back and forth than just one character sitting in bed and thinking about what it is that we know. Um, so, and then also sometimes like you write the scene where the character, I always tell people like you don't need to have scenes where the character decides to do something, just have them do the thing. Um, so, you know, sometimes you need to write the scene where they decide, they consider their options, um, they talk about how they're getting to the thing that they're going to do, and then you just take all that out and you just, like, open up the scene on, like, there they are at the place that they were going to, doing the thing they were going to do. The example I like to use is, um, one of my favorite movies is called Ten Things I Hate About You. It was, like, a teen comedy from my adolescence and um there's this scene in it where the main love interest uh he serenades the girl who he's into with like this the full band of like their full high school band and they go like and he has a mic and he's singing to her and like ever you know she's out on the soccer pitch and his voice is coming through the loudspeakers and he and this like hundred person band are like you know marching in formation um and What's so great is that you never, like, logistically, in reality, that would be very complicated, but you never actually see a moment where they are planning any of this, and therefore you don't wonder about it. There's not, like, a full scene of him being, like, like, all right, here's how I'm going to get the mic, and then figure out how the mic hooks up to, like, the wireless PA system so that she can hear me on the soccer pitch, and, like, you know, here's the song that I need to learn so that the band can, like, that's all boring it's boring it doesn't matter it's just like you know just cut to like a friend saying to him like man you gotta make it up to her and then like cut to she's soccer practice and he like comes out singing um and then uh, let's talk uh, about the uh, illustrator is kim how do you say kim's last name blockwit 
did uh, you work with her uh, ahead of time? Because this, and I know that you know, obviously you you were an editor of picture books. You had the experience of authors having to trust their illustrator, but you're really trusting the illustrator uh, through parts of this to deliver whole, almost whole scenes uh, between characters and and pivotal character moments are are delivered. Uh, plus, plus some of the best, not the best jokes, but some. Some of the really quality jokes are are uh, are placed in those uh, illustrations as well. So, how much did you work with her ahead of time, or did you have notes? How, how did you pull that off? Mm-hmm. So, um, I will say this was Kim's first book that she illustrated, and I think she did an amazing job. Um, and I, for the art, I gave like vague descriptions about what each thing would be. So, saying like, you know, this shows them in Jordan's hothouse, though I didn't really say much about what it would be. And then, but then I would write down what the dialogue bubbles would be that would appear in that art. Or then if there were like any labels for things in the art, I would write down what those labels would be. So all the text in the art, all the like jokes in the art um, came from me, but you know, um, it'd be like, let's see if we can pull up one here. Um, So like, this is just the first one that I came up with. So here I said, like, you know, here's what Maddie says, here's what Daniel says, here's what Janet says. Um, But I didn't describe anything about, you know, what they'd be wearing or what their motions would be or where they'd be sitting or, um, you know, all that came from her. And I learned a lot about how to do this actually from editing Max Brallier's Last Kids on Earth series, which is another one where the art and text are Um, really deeply intertwined and I've edited a number of books in that series so I've seen how Max describes um, just how much he needs in the art and what he and and what he just like leaves to the illustrator's imagination Um, and so I used um, an approach very similar to his as I was writing my manuscript. So you're writing just a brief description of what the art's going to look like as well as the dialogue are there doodles someplace? There are Uh, no doodles I can't draw. (laughs) No, it would maybe say, like, you know, the description for this one would be, like, um, Maddie, Janet, and my friend Daniel celebrating together. And then it would have their, you know, each of their dialogue bubbles, and she can decide what celebrating together looks like. Oh, that's still a huge degree of trust right there. That's characterization. I'm not a very visual person, so it's not like I have some specific vision in my head and I'm going to be disappointed if it doesn't look like that. Anything that I say, I'm sort of like, yeah, that seems cool. I I wouldn't have pictured that. I don't know. Um, Yeah, I didn't initially envision the book with art, actually. It was my agent's idea. He said, you know, people are so into graphic novels right now, and would you do this book as a graphic novel? Um, And I was like, I don't think so, because, like, I've I've never written a graphic novel and I don't read a ton of graphic novels, and therefore I was like, I don't really feel comfortable at this stage, like, writing in that format. And I was like, but I have read a ton of Last Kids on Earth in, like, great detail, so I know how to do a book where illustrations are, you know, playing a part in telling the story, but it's not pure, like, comic book panels. So I was like, I could do that, and does that seem like a good compromise? And my agent said yes, so. And your agent, of course, is Stephen Barber, is that right? Yes. Is it Barbara or Barbara? I'm never sure. Yeah, Barbara. Barbara, just like the name. Gotcha. And did you, uh, have you had him since your first book? Or when was that somebody you met while you were an editor? Or did you submit the old-fashioned way with a query? How did you hook up with your agent? Um, 
I did not submit the old-fashioned way. It's like, I feel like my story about how I got my agent is annoying to people who don't work in the industry because it, it contains no useful nuggets of wisdom. Uh, but I, working at Penguin, I was friends with um, the author Lauren Oliver, um, who obviously is a very successful YA and middle grade and, and now adult novelist as well. Uh, but at the time, she was an editorial assistant down the hall for me. Um, and um, Stephen was representing her. And incidentally, Lauren and Stephen and I all went to the same college. So um, Stephen and I were a few years apart. We hadn't overlapped there. Um, but Lauren and he had. So when she was looking for um, like agent contacts, she went to him. Um, he signed her. And then I met him at a party that we were all at. And, and I was like, oh, you're Lauren's agent. And I said, I'm writing a book. And he said, oh, that sounds great. Send it to me when it's done. So again, like there's nothing actionable there. You can't, it's, it's just annoying. You can't do that if you don't work in New York City publishing. Well, I think we've just come across a, a nice clear argument as to why uh, one might want to be in New York for at least a portion of one's uh, career. Yeah. <laughs> publishing. Uh, and did you say it like with a, um, you know, a detached, yes, I'm a literary agent. You know that about me now. So tell me about your book. Yes, send it to me. Can we please move on with the rest of the party? Or did you give him a full pitch right then and there? So, um, so this was 2009. And at the time, um, as I was working on the book, which became mostly Good Girls, its working title was Wayward Girls. Um, so, yeah, so I said to Stephen, I was like, oh, I'm writing a novel. And he said, very much with polite interest, um, he said, oh, that, you know, like, that's nice. What's it called? Um, and I said, it's called Wayward Girls. And he said, oh, like Winter Girls, which was a Laurie Halls Anderson YA novel that had recently come out. And that was phenomenally good, got like six starred reviews, um, just like super powerful about um, girls suffering from eating disorders, like, I mean, like, beyond good. So he said, so I said, Wayward Girls, and he said, oh, like, Winter Girls. And I said, so much better than Winter Girls. <laughs> and he, Stephen is, like, very deadpan, and, like, and so, and he didn't know me, and so he looked at me, and he said, really? And I was like, no, of course not, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and he was like, okay, well, send it to me anyway. So... <laughs> Uh, that was our how we met story. And I uh, I do read us a little bit because I'm I'm curious if you're going back and you're uh, with the campaign you're gonna you're not making this into a graphic novel but you are making way for illustrations throughout. I'm assuming there was a much longer Snyder cut someplace where you took out whole sections of prose uh, to replace with here's a good opportunity for an illustration. So how many drafts does does that does that take? Can you go back and easily do that in one draft and cut it down? further or how does that yeah, process well, so one of the really nice things about having a literary agent is that I always get Stephen to weigh in or almost always get Stephen to weigh in before I'm done with the manuscript so this one I think I probably sent him the first you know maybe 75 pages and said what do you think of this as a direction for my next book and that was when he said you know could you could you put art in it so I wasn't rewriting the whole thing like I you know just the bit that he had seen Oh, okay. So you, you hadn't finished the full manuscript? I had not, yeah. Gotcha, okay. 
and then uh, when it comes to working with your your editors, is Maggie Learman? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. This was my first time working with Maggie on the campaign, and then we're doing my next middle grade together as well. So in that case, I mean, do you sit down and say, "Hey, look, I've I've, I've done this job. Uh, I've got the experience as an editor. So go get some coffee." Uh, have a nice afternoon, work on some of your many other projects. I got this for you. Or is it, uh, is it a situation where the dentist goes and complains when he has to get his, uh, get her teeth cleaned at the other dentist? Uh, it doesn't, and wants to be, uh, I was uncomfortable the whole time or is a better model patient because they know what to expect. I like to believe I'm a better model patient. Um, I mean, I guess you could ask my editors if they thought that was true. Um, but no, I mean, I think there are definitely things there are some things where I'm just like more chill about them because I understand that like the editor doesn't really have a say over them or, you know, I can sort of, um, you know, uh, like, for example, like I have authors who will change a lot of things in first pass pages and that um, puts in extra challenge for the designer and the copy editor. So I don't do that because like I've worked with designers and copy editors and I'm aware of how that um, puts an undue burden on them. So that's something that like maybe wouldn't occur to someone who hasn't worked in-house. Um, no, and I, I mean, I think I like being edited as much as anybody likes being edited, which is to say like initially you're like, no, why can't you just think it's perfect the way that it is? Um, and then, and then you're like, okay, these are good suggestions and I will, you know, I will make these changes. And I think also sometimes I'm like every bit as helpless as anyone who doesn't have, you know, where I'll be like, I'll be like, I understand we need more of a conflict here. We need to make, you know, we need some sort of resolution in this plot line or whatever it is, but like, I don't know what it is. Like the reason why that plot line is not resolved is because I don't know what the resolution looks like. So like, help me stay on the phone with me for an hour and like help me brainstorm what it could be. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've got to assume and you know what uh, Maggie Lerman if you're listening I would love to have you on the show and I will ask you some of these uh, questions as well um, but and she's I, an author too Maggie is better you know. than the average writer I'm sorry Maggie's an author as well oh excellent oh that, that's perfect so um, next time uh, you've got a book I, I assume Maggie Lerman listens every week uh, next time you've got a book Come on, let's 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 talk about it, and we'll get some insight into uh, into editing uh, Lila Sales as well. Uh, but I've got to imagine that you you've got to be a little bit easier to work with than the the, the average writer because you're going to take feedback a little bit uh, more laid back. You're going to understand what's needed when it's told, even if you don't uh, maybe agree with it or like it. You at least probably you speak the language. You know what she needs and why she's asking for it, right? Yes. Yes. Well, there. Um, you go. I just I don't know that I get like any. I think what I'm saying is like I'm no less like emotional about it than any other writer is. You know, like like when I get negative feedback, there's no part of me that's like that's like ah oh, well you have given negative feedback many times and so of course it's just like you know this is nothing personal and so on and so forth. It's like I still feel as upset as any other writer would. You know. What do you do with that? Because I assume you can't you can't throw a fit. You you can't uh, you don't want to make us think. How do you how do you deal with that when you when you've got those feelings and you know you have to do something but you, that you don't want to do? 
you feel bad for a while. Sometimes I'll call one of my writer friends and um, complain to them. And, you know, I think you, like, need colleagues who, like, go through similar things in their careers and who could say things to you like, oh, that's so unfair. Um, And because you can say it back to them. Um, You know, sometimes... I'll email my editor, or sorry, not my editor. Don't go to your editor if you're upset. Um, but I'll email my agent, and he'll email me back, and he'll say like, he'll say like, this is very disappointing. And you know, even just like just knowing that someone's in your corner and you're not alone, you're like, you're like, okay, yeah, like, um, yeah, it's not so bad because I have people who are like in it with me. Do you uh, do you for? foresee yourself eventually transitioning to nothing but not nothing but 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 writing full-time and exclusively writing or do you love editing enough that you're always going to be doing some level of editing i hope to always be doing some level of editing i mean that was yeah when i moved to austin um people were like that's great you can write full-time and i was like who said i want to write full-time i want to write full-time um i i love helping authors craft their books i love it um i wouldn't want to get that up unless i had to i mean if i was in a situation where like gun to my head i had to either write my own books or edit books i think i'd probably choose to write my own books but like hopefully no one will ever put a gun to my head and make me choose just choose long enough to get away from that person (laughs) whatever you want yeah totally However, James Kahn got out of that house in, mem- in misery. Do that and then go back to whatever you want. <laughs> um, and then what, 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 is the, uh, what is the most satisfying thing about being an editor and helping an author uh, achieve a, the dream of whatever book that you're working on together? I mean, that's it, right? Like helping, helping them achieve their dream. It feels like putting together a puzzle and so that like satisfying feeling of when you like you know every time you connect a piece and you're like yes like that's where it goes and then when you like put the last piece in and you're like you know you're like there it is it's the whole puzzle i did it it's like yeah i mean you've i don't know you've helped someone achieve their dreams you've like helped make something really good you know that it would be different had it been in somebody else's hands um so like it makes you feel like you had a positive impact. I know something I've, I've talked with a number of other writers, sometimes on the show, sometimes off, uh, about, I, I don't have a, a, I'm sure there probably is a, a word for whatever this experience is, but that experience where it's either your subconscious speaks to you, but it feels like the muse has spoken to you and presented a story solution, or you're off doing something completely uh, unrelated to your book, and then you find the, 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 the vision of whatever chapter you need, whatever story moment you need, mm-hmm. whatever the character motivation is that was missing comes to you and then the book is much better and you think well this couldn't have been me that has been working and focusing on this this whole time this had to be something external that that came through maybe yes maybe no uh, that's a debate for for folks smarter than i am but does that same experience repeat itself when you're editing someone else's work or some version yes, yes. um and it's not as you don't spend as much time kind of like obsessing over trying to find, you know, trying to find that thing that makes it easier because it's not, 
your book, but yes, totally. I'll do the thing where I'm like, you know, riding my bike and sort of like thinking through what it is that we have in somebody's book. And I'm like, what do we need? What, like in the, in the most recent last kids on earth book example, uh, last kids on earth book as an example that I was editing, it was like, um, and there's this thing in it where like, everybody really wants this thing but it just wasn't clear why they wanted the thing. I was like, the thing is not like an inherently good thing to have. And people are willing, like multiple characters are willing to sacrifice a lot in order to have it. So like, we have to know what is motivating them to like want this thing so badly. Um, and so the author and I talked for ages, just kind of round and round, you know, for multiple days of being like, Maybe the thing they want is a different thing. Or, you know, maybe they want it. Maybe the thing that they want actually comes with this perk or that perk or whatever it is that makes it a thing that's worth having. Um, and ultimately, I mean, we went through so many different ideas. Um, and ultimately, the author pitched something. He was like, maybe if you had this thing, then like, you know, then you could also like do this other thing that that like would be beneficial and I was like okay like it's I was like you have something there it's not exactly that it's not exactly the thing you just said but I think it's going to be something like similar to that sort of like taking the idea that you had but but like twisting it in this way um and that feels like really rewarding you're like yeah there is a problem and like I have solve it Ah, an esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody uh Lila Sales have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost not that I'm aware of, unfortunately. I don't know why I said unfortunately. Not that I'm aware of. I don't know if that's fortunate or unfortunate. Ah, depends on the ghost, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that seems true. Hopefully it's a nice, friendly ghost, in which case wouldn't it be nice if it would introduce itself? <laughs> um, you should have, my friend Courtney Scheinmel writes some middle grade, and you should have her on because I believe she has seen a ghost. Oh, yeah? I think so. Cool. Well, she's going to be getting an email from me. We love a good ghost story uh, here. Well, I do. I, I assume esteemed audience. They, they keep tuning in, so I assume if nothing else, it's not a detriment. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, well, just a, a couple of brief questions, because I uh, and then we'll think about landing this thing, because you've been very generous with your time, and I always want to end while we're still having fun. Yeah. Um, I know that you give uh, presentations. Uh, people can go to your, your website right now, livethesales.com. Uh, and find out more information because they, they've heard how eloquent you are, how uh, wonderful you are at expressing yourself. They're going to want more of this. They're going to want to. They're going to want to to hear what you have to say. Um, but I know you give a presentation on what authors need to know about the business of publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of taste can you give us just for free? What do authors need to know? Um, in that presentation. I talk about a lot of different things as sort of like what the different departments at a publisher are doing, sort of who's taking care of what. Um, but a, a lot of, I will say like the, the kind of tidbit that I'll give you in advance is that I talk a fair bit about finances. I feel like most authors, even authors who are published, have so little understanding of the finances and they sign their contract and often like don't really know what it is that they're signing they're like so excited just to have a book out in the world that um yeah that that maybe the rest of it kind of eludes them so going over like okay like 
here's how advances work. Here's how royalties work. Here's how, um, you know, bonuses work and, you know, what makes a book profitable and um, the kind of stuff that many authors are like, oh, like, the, I'm not a math person. It's like, well, like, when it's your income, you should be at least a little bit of a math person. Well, I assume that uh, once the book comes out and everyone loves it, there's great fame and then fortune follows, right? That's just how that works. Sure. Sure. That's the, yeah, it's, that's the one slide in my PowerPoint. Just, <laughs> it just shows raining dollar bills and then I move on. <laughs> sure. It's a very short presentation. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, author. You've won. Here's. You oh, did it. Uh, and then what uh, do what editors wish writers knew? What do what should writers know about editors that's not commonly known? Um, so I do, as I said, I wrote an article about this for Publishers Weekly, and I highly recommend the article because um, I say like everything in it. Um, but I think the the thing that I most want authors to be aware of is that, just how little time editors spend with manuscripts and authors that they don't already have signed up. That is to say submissions. You know, I think like as a writer and you send a submission, you know, it's a picture book submission and it takes you four months to hear back. And you're like, what is this? It's 500 words. Like, couldn't you just read it and respond to me, you know, tonight? Um, so if you understand what editors actually spend their time doing and how little of it is focused on reading submissions and how much of it is focused on working with the manuscripts that they already have acquired. Um, I think things start to make more sense and at least seem less like they're just ignoring you. And what have you got coming uh, next? What can we be looking forward to? Ooh, good question. Um, in terms of teaching, I know I'm teaching a, a like a one-off class about the um, sort of like how the basics of how book publishing works. It's an intro to publishing class, intro to Kidlet. Um, I'm teaching that for the illustration department. Um, I think in August. There's a good chance I'll have something before then, but that's the one I know I have scheduled. Um, and then I'm writing a, another middle grade with Abrams right now, which. Hopefully we'll come out in fall 22, but I would have to finish it first. So, you know, we'll see. Well, and, uh, I've got two last questions for you and we'll call it a night. That's how that's a yeah, plan. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, first one's impossible. <laughs> uh, right. but I'll uh, go ahead and ask it anyway. Um, knowing that we do not know the future, or at least I don't. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I don't want to make assumptions. Uh, but... Uh, We've had this huge pandemic. We've seen it impact publishing. We're probably going to see it continue to impact us. How do you imagine, other than hopefully more remote work opportunities are going to be opening up, how do you foresee that impacting publishing as a whole? And how are you making plans to prepare yourself for how that for those changes that are coming? Yeah, I really don't know. And I think nobody knows and that's part of what makes this so challenging i think we are accustomed to believing that somebody knows you know like maybe i don't know but my boss knows or my boss's boss knows or you know the president knows or whatever it is so sort of coming to the terms of like like publishers haven't said very much about what the future is going to look like 
not because they're withholding that information, but because they genuinely haven't figured it out yet. So, you know, I mean, I think some of it's going to be business as usual and people hopefully will still want books. And, you know, I've heard the argument made that with, uh, you know, with so much time off from filming new TV content that maybe there's going to be more of a market for books um, because that's something that can keep, you know, being generated and coming out during a pandemic. Um, But yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. But I hope that I am relevant in whatever it is. It is my hope that uh, people are spending enough time. There's only so much Netflix you can watch. There's only so many video games you can play. Uh, people are rediscovering their love of reading, and there are readers that had fallen out of habit that are, are back in and uh, hungry for more books. I would very much like that to be the case. Me too. Uh, and then my last question for you is always uh, some variation uh, if you could go back to any point in your writing career, the very start, somewhere in the middle, uh, wherever would be useful to you, and give yourself some advice that would have made a huge difference for your career and might make a huge difference in the career of all the writers who are listening or watching us, what would you go back and tell yourself and what would you tell them? Something that would have made a huge difference in my career. Um, you know, I, I I don't know exactly what this would have looked like played out, but um, my most successful book was this YA novel called The Song Will Save Your Life, which came out in 2013. It's been translated into 12 languages and literally to this day, as in like three hours ago, I, you know, get messages from readers about how much it meant to them. Um, And I think there was probably some way to parlay that into greater success that I did not do. Um, And that's unfortunate because now it's, you know, it's like the most successful moment of my career was eight years ago. And hopefully there will be future highs that I have yet to reach. Um, But uh, publishing is not, it's not like a straight mountain or like career ladder sort of thing. You can have um, great highs followed by lots of not so highs. It's not like, you know, once you have one, really successful book, then everything else after that is guaranteed to be successful. Um, So sort of, you know, appreciate the successes while you have them. Do what you can to parlay them into more successes. Um, You know, and then, and then I guess, like, don't compare the other things that are, that are not like that to that same moment, you know, just kind of enjoy each thing for what it is. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Sales Books with the weird spelling of my name, L-E-I-L-A. Um, and then my website is just lilasales.com. This has been absolutely tremendous. Uh, thank you so much for, for making time for me, for esteemed audience uh, who is headed to your website right now to book you for additional uh, speaking because we, we just got the free taste tonight. They were going to want the full deal. 
<laughs> uh, as always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com where you can read interviews with all the best people, all the editors, all the literary agents, all the authors, everything, everyone who's good in this world has appeared at middlegradeninja.com or will, eventually will. Uh, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.